Right, let me do the usual. Am I on? Audible? Great. <clears throat> okay. Well, if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Exodus chapter 20. We're continuing our sermon series in the Ten Commandments. Now, this morning's sermon is going to be very quick. Okay? So Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, on the sixth commandment, and it says this. You shall not murder. Ready? Right, guys. Pack it in. No more murdering. Helen, do you want to come up? Should we sing some songs in response? Obviously, I jest. But I think the point is that when we often read commands like this, which are only four words long, which say, you shall not murder, I think we take it at very face value, and we say, okay, Lord, I won't. It's like there's a a verse that comes up in a few chapters' time in Exodus where God says to the Israelites, do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. And most of us read the Bible and we say, okay, Lord, I won't. But you have to think, what's going on underneath this? Why is this here in the Ten Commandments? What's it doing there? And I think the first thing we should do when we say you shall not murder is ask, what is God not saying to the people? Because I think a lot of misinterpretation can come when we read more into the verse than what is there. So it's really important that we see that this command is you shall not murder, not you shall not kill. And uh, I may go controversial straight away at the beginning, but the Bible is actually very on board with something like capital punishment. I say something like, it's um, the death penalty for murder is described in the Bible before the law of Moses is given, in the law of Moses, and in the New Testament. So all kind of phases of the Bible say that murder warrants the death penalty. Now, obviously, if someone is going to kill someone as a penalty, that can't be murder. Murder, strictly speaking, is the immoral, unsanctioned taking away of human life. Okay, so God takes murder so seriously that if someone does it, the state, those with the power that God has given, are given the rights to take away that person's life. That taking away of life is not murder. But, at the same time, the state doesn't have the right to kill anyone who they like. That would be murder because that hasn't been sanctioned by God. So, an executioner, for instance, might be allowed to kill this criminal. That doesn't mean they can kill anyone else. Not murder, everyone else, murder. Similarly, soldiers, their job necessarily involves the killing of other humans. And it's a sanctioned form of it. It's something that is... When I say it's okay, we should never take that as though there's no gravity to it. So, for instance, with the death penalty, we're not saying, and it's fine that people get killed as a penalty. Whether someone is being killed in self-defense, whether someone's being killed by a soldier or a policeman on duty with a, with a gun, or in a, in a state kind of penalty, none of these things are light. They're all very serious. They're the taking away of human life, but they are not murder. And if we stay for a moment on the capital punishment note, the reason why it's such a big deal and the reason why a lot of people have an issue with the concept of capital punishment is because we see that in the taking away of human life, there's something really problematic there. And that's because God comes to us in his word and he says, yes, this is, and this shows how much I have an issue with murder. It's that serious that if you do it, your life is forfeit. 
So it, not to spend the whole uh, time this morning talking about capital punishment and being a soldier or whatever, because this passage is not about doing those things. This passage is about a different form of killing. But I do think it's important to put those things out the way. You, there's an there's a anti-death penalty campaign in America at the moment that's kind of using this verse, and, and we've passed that point in the UK. We don't have it. But nonetheless, it's just to say this isn't about that. And you can be a Christian soldier. You can be in the military. That's, that's not something that the Ten Commandments tells us not to do. So what is it telling us not to do? Well, not to murder. As I said, in one sense, very straightforward. So God is coming to his people and commanding them that they take seriously that they have no right to take away another life of the human unless there is a specific circumstance, which we've already gone over. And those things are all laid out. But it's, it's interesting that in the Ten Commandments, none of the commands just kind of speak loosely to an outward action which none of us might never, ever get to. So you might think, well, this is one of the commands that I can be absolutely safe on because I'm not planning to murder and I never have murdered in the past. But you have to notice that the Ten Commandments speaks to the heart. It really gets under the surface. And throughout the Bible, the action that is murder is always associated with well, what was going on with the heart that led up to that moment. And the Bible uses the language of like a root. The, the root of murder is hatred. The root of murder is envy, is uh, displeasure in this person. If you let that fester, if you let that grow, if you let that develop to its fully developed form, what you end up with is murder. So God both, by commanding us not to murder, is commanding against the end result, the actual killing of human life, but is also asking us to deal with the root. Now, if you don't want to take my words for it, take Jesus's. In Matthew 5, Jesus says this. Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The, the point here that Jesus is making is when you hear it said you, you don't murder, that doesn't mean you can say, well, I'll do everything but. I'll hate the person in my heart. I'll make their life difficult. I'll do all those things. I'm just not going to actually take the knife and do it. And Jesus' point is don't just deal with the action at the end. Deal with the heart that leads up to it. Jesus' point there, if you hate your brother, you have murdered him in your heart. That's quite a challenging verse to take in. And, and if you've grown up knowing the Bible and hearing that, that's probably just kind of passes over your head. You know, yeah, okay, don't hate in your heart, that's, that's murder. But what Jesus is actually saying there is, as seriously as you take murder, God takes your hatred for your fellow man in your heart. And so far from being a verse that we read and just kind of excuse ourselves when we say, oh, well, I've not murdered anyone, I'm not planning to, this is a verse that's supposed to convict us and makes us realize, oh, my goodness, I am a murderer. And if you were with us uh, a number of weeks ago when we started this series in the Ten Commandments, we, we talked about how there's, when you come to the law, there's three 
ways you can approach it. There's three uses, theologians have called them. And the first use of the law we talked about was this notion that you read it and you realize how much you disobey it and you realize how much you need a savior. And so we come to this and we come to the you shall not murder and we realize, oh my goodness, I'm a murderer. I hate people all the time. I'm often uh, disposed to not treat them well. I often find myself um, thinking about ways that that person could be not as good as they could be. I'm finding ways to ruin their reputation. I I find myself um, being antagonistic towards them. And God comes to us and he says, you are a murderer. What do you do with a murderer? Now we either just excuse ourselves and say, well, God, your standards are too high. I don't like that. Or we say, yes, I am, and I really need a savior. And the really good news is that Jesus came into the world to save murderers like you and like me. He came to bear the sins of his people. And when we read the story of Jesus going to the cross, you actually do have to draw yourself into it. There he was in this crowd of people who a few days ago were welcoming him as the coming king. Woo, we're so glad he's here. And then there he is, and they're all shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. The challenge is that you and me, as people who are opposed to God, who murder people in our heart, who want it our way, need to find ourselves in that crowd shouting, crucify him. That's where we would be if we were there. It's humiliating to realize it, but it's true. So then, in a few days' time when he's killed and he rises from the dead and he can declare that it is finished, the sins of his people are forgiven, now this same man who was crucified by the crowd has become their substitute. And they can believe in him and have him. So the challenge here is that we need to be humbled to realize how low we are, that we are murderers, so that then we can take seriously how good God's gift of graces to us in Jesus. Before the cross is something done for us, it's something done by us. Only the person who is prepared to own their share in the death of Jesus can claim to share in its benefits. We're all murderers before God. We're haters. We are people who take down other people and put ourselves higher up. So, we don't just deal with the action at the end. We need to go back. We need to go through our head and into our heart and say, why is this root of hatred in me? Why is this displeasure or dislike for other people continually coming up in me? And it may not lead to actually, as I say, taking a weapon and doing something about it, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is it's there. And you either are allowing it to fester and grow or you are at war with it and you're saying, no, I will not give in to this. I don't think that's an easy thing to do because it's very easy to not like people. I also don't think it's very easy to do because it takes humility because the reason we often don't like people is because we don't think that they're treating us as we should be treated and we put ourselves on such a pedestal. And by the way, I should say, I, this is not just one of those sermons where I'm saying to you, because I've reached the point where I'm, I'm perfect, and you guys, I mean, I just chat to some of you, and I think, man, I need to preach into that. No, this is me preaching to myself. It's 
far too easy to let these things develop and to just think, well, it's normal to be cross with people. It's normal to be angry at people. Now, biblically, there is such a thing as kind of right anger. It's not like if you're angry, you're automatically sinning. Jesus gets furious with people. He throws their animals and their tables out of the temple courtyards. Jesus shows us what right anger looks like. So it's not like being angry is itself a problem or being cross at people. But I would probably, not really a betting man, but I would probably bet that, say, 90% of the time we're angry or frustrated with people. It's not that kind of Jesus-like righteous anger, maybe. So we're, we're kind of challenged by this. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to put that to death? What are we going to do with it? Now, one of the things I think we can do is, is ask, when we're asking is what do I do about it, is think about it like this. The opposite of not murdering is not, of, of murdering is not not murdering, right? So if God says do not murder, he is telling you positively to do something else. So you think, well, what's the opposite? Now, as I say, the opposite of murdering is not not murdering. So let's just think about this. So commandment one says, don't have any other gods. So what does God mean? He means, do worship me. Commandment two is, don't worship through pictures. So it means, and do worship in the way that I've told you. Commandment number three, do not blaspheme the name of the Lord. So do honor the name of the Lord. You you see the point? We go on like this. So when God says, do not murder, what is the opposite of that action? Well, as I say, it's not not murdering. It's positively loving and looking toward the good of those around you. That is the opposite of murdering someone. So in the command to not murder, we are commanded to be this little beacon of uh, loving kindness to a world which kind of, that's so foreign. Because it's so easy in the world to say, well, you've wronged me, so I'm going to not like you now. Or I'm going to care for myself, and I might also show some kindness to you. It's, it's easy to say, don't knock someone's reputation. Right? So what that could mean is, I know something bad about Phil, and I'm not going to tell you guys. That's different from saying, I'm positively going to look for Phil's good reputation. So when I'm talking to people and Phil comes up, I'm going to say, oh yeah, let me tell you this wonderful thing that he did. That's what it means to do the opposite of murdering someone. To make them appear better, not better than they are, but to, to bring other people into a good view of that person. To make their life nicer. So murdering is taking away life. The opposite of murdering is giving life. Giving more life to the people around us. You know, we kind of use this phrase in English that that people say, oh, they're such a life-giving person. Uh, when I'm around them, I just feel alive. That's the command we're given, to be that kind of person. A, a source of life and positivity and joy to those around us. So, as I say, that the, the kind of the first use of the law thing we talked about, what drives us to Christ, is that notion that, oh my goodness, I'm a murderer, and I continue to murder. 
But then this kind of, what do we do about this? How do we act in such a way? This is what we call the, the third use of the law, right? The third use of the law, we come to and we say, right, I know I'm a sinner. I, I know that I need a savior. And I found Jesus and he is so good and he's forgiven me of my sins. So now, Lord, I want to obey you. I want to keep your law. I want to do what's right. And that's what we call the third use of the law. And, and so we have in this command, as I say, this first use drives us down. It makes us see the gap between me and God. It makes me realize if I'm this low, because I keep hating people in my heart, I keep hating those around me, I keep murdering, I'm a murderer, then God must be this high, because that thought is completely foreign to God. God has never looked at someone and hated them unrighteously. So when we think about this commandment from the first use of the law perspective, it's driving the gap between us and God even bigger so that we realize I am a murderer and I need a savior. And that's when the gospel comes in and it says, well, I've got fantastic news for you because God loves to save murderers who repent and call on him. Because Jesus was killed by murderers like you and said, Father, forgive them. So we take seriously Jesus on the cross and we, we say, thank you, Lord, that's so amazing. And then we come in the third use and we say, I'm going to be a more life-giving person. I want to be someone who demonstrates the love of God in my life to those around me. I want to do the opposite of murdering for myself, for my family, for my friends, for people who I don't like. Now that is the particularly challenging bit. I mean, Jesus, he has to go and say some tough stuff, doesn't he? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I can kind of accept not hating my enemies. I can kind of accept turning the other cheek. You know, they're, they're rude or harsh or mean to you or do something that's not great and, and you just kind of ignore it, you let it fly off. But love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You mean that person keeps wronging you, you keep going back to show love. That person keeps um, causing damage and, and, and hatred, you keep going back and showing love. Now, it takes wisdom to know what that looks like in every context. So, for instance, we would not be saying, and, and Jesus would not be saying to say, let's say there's a wife in an uh, abusive relationship. The message there is just, well, keep forgiving him, keep going back, keep getting hurt. Ob obviously not. There's wisdom required here. But generally speaking, this challenge is that we are not those who just kind of give up on people because they're terrible people. Because we need to be reminded from the Bible that we're all terrible people. And then praying for them. Praying for those who persecute you. I mean, there's some Psalms which I find very easy to pray about those who persecute us. So, Psalm 5, for instance, Lord, slay the evildoer. Make their name no more. Yeah, those, those prayers can be quite easy to pray sometimes. What about to pray for their good? You pray that this person who I really don't like, I pray that they do really well in life, Lord. Bless them, I pray. See how challenging the Christian faith is. And, and I've often said before that personal conflict, interpersonal conflict, is where the rubber hits the road in the Christian faith. Because it's easy to just kind of on the Sunday morning come along and sing some songs and 
you know, pray out and read a couple of Bible verses or do your quiet time in the week. It's, it's almost easy, or easier, dare I say it, in that kind of vertical me-to-God relationship than it is to the me-to-my-fellow-person relationship. But if we take seriously what God has done for us, then we need to take seriously what we can do for others. So in the Bible, it tells us that God is the kind of God who, when his people keep spitting in his face, he holds his hands out to them and welcomes them back. Again, the story of the prodigal son is another story about how this person who is the son of the father goes off, spends all his wealth, has nothing left, and when he comes back, and he comes back to say, just can you just send me away to get me a job somewhere? You know, sorry about that. He's greeted by the father chucking his arms around him and loving him and saying, I'm just so glad that you're mine. And I think that's what God does for us. I guarantee every single person in this room is not as good as God. You weren't yesterday, you aren't today, and you won't be tomorrow. And yet every day, God treats you as though you have the righteousness of Christ if you're in him. We all fall short, and yet God continues to show loving kindness to us. So the challenge for us is, how do I demonstrate that in my life? How do I show that to those around me? These are not easy things to grasp, I don't think, at all. Nor should they be. God didn't give us these commands because they were easy to keep. He gave us these commands because he saw that humanity was completely turned from him. Humanity was completely going its way, and he decided in the people of Israel to raise up a preview of a new humanity that God was going to make. This little um, tiny snippet of this whole new creation project that God is working at. And he gave them these rules, these laws, not just as a burden over them, but to say to them, this is what it will look like to have a new humanity, to have a God-honoring humanity throughout this world. And so these are our blueprints of what it looks like to be God's people. So this isn't optional. Right? So, yeah, I'm a Christian, and um, I feel like I've, I've got the not committing adultery one. I feel like I've got the not worshipping through pictures. I feel like I've got the no other gods before me. But I think I'm satisfied to just say I'm going to die still murdering people in my heart. It's, it's not like that at all. This is a command from God to us that we are to be a people who are marked by the opposite of murdering. I don't think it's easy. Easy to say, easy to talk about. I don't think it's easy to put into practice. Which is why we need God's forgiveness. It's why we need God's grace. So when we talk about kind of approaching the law through the first use, I need a savior, and then through the third use, I have one and I want to obey him. These aren't like exclusive categories. We talked about this a few weeks ago. That The point isn't that we say, well, I used to come to the law and realize I need a savior, and now I just come looking for a rule for my life. The point is that they bounce off each other constantly. We constantly need to see our need for forgiveness. We constantly need to see our need for grace. We constantly need to see how often we fall short of what's on paper a very simple command, but actually is one that goes right down to the heart and questions how we interact with other people, what we dwell on, what we want to see happen in the world. So I, I don't come and just say this morning, just, I, I, I joked earlier, pack it in guys, don't do any murdering. 
that's really not the point at all. The point is, guys, can we struggle at this together? Can we work together to be a group of people who show God's loving kindness to a world that needs it? In the New Testament, there's a number of places where Paul addresses churches where there have been fallouts in the churches. And the point that he makes is this can't continue. This is not God's design for his people. If we're going to show out there what God's loving kindness is like, we have to show it in here. I don't know, but that you might be sat here this morning and you know that there's someone in the room who you have an issue with or an ongoing conflict with. I don't know if there is, but I'm, I'm going to say to everyone here is, put this into practice. Go and make peace with that person. Work for their reputation to be increased. Work, work for them to look better to those around you. You might be here and you've been hurt by someone and you feel you're on the passive side. Now, as I say, I'm not telling you to just go in and kind of take as much damage as you can, but as much as you can, forgive that person. Pray for them. Love them. And if we see in ourselves that root of anger or bitterness, then the challenge is, what are you going to do about it? It's not, well, I'm just going to leave it and hopefully it'll go away. That's not how it works. You, you know, you, you take a root of a plant, you put it in the soil, it doesn't just think, oh, well, I might just do nothing and then in a few months I'm going to grow. It either dies or it starts growing. So that root of anger or hatred in us, it's either festering and growing and resulting in maybe not quite murder, maybe, or we are killing it, we are attacking it, we are putting weed killer on it, and we're saying, no, help me, Lord, to love that person. So what we're going to do in a moment is share communion together. Now, you might not... Uh, think it when you first read it, but I actually think that communion is probably the most appropriate thing you can do with this verse, and this verse is maybe one of the most appropriate to go through before we get to communion, because communion is this kind of strange thing that we do, which somehow makes us this one body and joins us to the body of Jesus. I mean, I, I've read this verse a number of times before, but I just find it such a mystery. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This notion that we express this loving, um, there's not an easy Way, word in English to sum this up, wanting to see other people's reputation built upness, we express that by coming together, breaking one loaf of bread together, and, and having a bite, having some wine, and, and come and do that before God. And we don't necessarily know the mechanics of how this works, but what we believe is that as we do that, Jesus comes to us to minister to us that by the Holy Spirit, he comes to bind us together over this very simple thing. I mean, I love it because God loves using mundane things. He loves using useless things like you and me. He takes this very simple bread and this very simple wine, and he says, right, you guys, 
be bound together, love each other more. Do the opposite of murdering here and do it well so that you can show it to those out there. So I'm going to break the bread. So in the following chapter in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this. If I can find it. He says, For what I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if you know and love the Lord Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, as the one you want to model your life on and receive forgiveness for your sins, then you are more than welcome this morning to come to this table, to, to break off a bit of bread, to take a cup of wine. There's, there's alcoholic and there's non-alcoholic in the, under the tissue paper. And share in this meal with us as we declare that Jesus is binding us together in love this morning. So everyone, come up in your own time. Take a bit of bread. Take a bit of wine. Uh, there is olives in the bread. That's all they had, unfortunately. But... Uh, it's more Mediterranean, more authentic.
So I have some really, really good news for us. Though we were once murderers and God-haters, God came in the person of Jesus and died in the place of sinners like you and me. So this morning we get the pleasure of sharing in his body together. Let's eat the body of Christ. And yet I have more good news for us all. Jesus Christ poured out his blood for us so that we can be confident that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. So this morning, let's share in the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you are so good to us. And Lord, even though we murder in our hearts and we often allow that kind of root of of hatred to um, fester in us, Lord, we thank you that you forgive us and you cleanse us and you make us new day by day. Lord, I pray that you would equip us and empower us to go to war with our hatred, to go to war with our uh, murderous tendencies, and instead be a people who just want to demonstrate and show your love, the great love that you've given to us in the gospel. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. And now, Helen and the band, you are